You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Welcome to MLB.com Extras, Rockies edition. MLB.com's Mark Feinsand recently sat down with Rockies Senior Vice President and General Manager Jeff Breidich to discuss his career, why signing a shortstop outfielder to be the Rockies' new first baseman was a good idea, and why Nolan Arenado may be one of the game's most anonymous superstars. Here's Mark. So, Jeff, you caught and played outfield at Harvard, uh, where you were a captain as a senior. How did your playing experience in college help you as you moved into a front office role? <laughs> uh, the ability to understand uh, struggle <laughs> and disappointment and having to persevere. Um, being a, a very average college player, um, you know, and, and, um, and having to um, do that at the same time, uh, trying to achieve academically at a very, uh, at a very challenging institution. Um, you know, there were a lot of life lessons in there. Uh, you know, a lot of good things too, though. I, we, back then, we, we had a very good program, and we, we were accustomed to winning a lot. And, uh, you know, whether it was winning the league and, and going on and playing in the NCAAs and, and, and actually, or going and, and beating, you know, bigger programs that had kind of become part of um, who we were at that time period. And, um, and being able to see that, and experience that um, was just important for me. Um, how it translates to the to the front office, I think, a couple of different ways. It, it, you know, it's funny when we didn't really think about necessarily front office baseball, front office back then. I mean, the dream was to play, right? So, um, but as I look back at it now, um, you know, the the things, some of the things that I learned about just purely about the game. And especially about pitching, um, and some of the intricacies of, of that, because uh, I, I came from the Midwest. I mean, we played a lot of baseball, but we didn't play certainly as much baseball as the guys on the West Coast, the guys down in Texas, the guys down in Florida. So there were a lot of things that I that I had to learn, in, and I did that in college. And, and I, I hope that you know those things stuck with me in, in terms of what is important to uh, to create winning baseball. Yeah, there were probably some months in Wisconsin where baseball wasn't really possible. <laughs> I grew up in New York. We had the yeah. same thing. Yeah, pretty cold. Uh, you, uh, you characterized yourself as an average college player. Yeah. You said the dream for all of you is to play. Did you Did you think there was a chance that you'd be able to pursue a professional career? Yeah, by the time I got to my senior year, I mean, I think that the writing on the wall was pretty clear. Um, you know, at, at, by the very end of it, it was, you know, flashing neon lights. Crystal right? clear. Crystal clear. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, you have that, you know, you, you grow up having that dream. If you, if you truly love the game, I think the way that we do in this industry, you know, I think it's natural and it's probably, it's almost universal that, that you, you grow up thinking, yeah, you know, what, why not? Why wouldn't I want to continue this and do this as long as I could possibly do it? Um, I think the realist in me, you know, came to the forefront certainly by senior year and probably in the back of my mind even before that, knowing seeing other people get the attention um, of scouts or just play better than me, you know, just some self-evaluation skills. Um, and so, um, you know, and that's okay. I mean, it was it was tough at the time, but, you know, just like anybody else, you pick yourself up and you move on. And, and honestly, going to and, and experiencing an institution like, you know, like Harvard, it, it, it gives you some perspective. Um, if you're not in awe at some point of the people around you, uh, you're probably not 
paying much attention, right? So, um, you know, it, uh, but at that time, it, uh, you know, kind of, at, you know, at that senior year, uh, sometime in there, it was, okay, so what, what's next here? And how can, is there a way to make baseball a part of what's next? Speaking of that, several GMs that I've spoken to started other careers after college and then decided to jump into baseball. Did you know right away that you wanted to find a career in baseball? Not really. Um, I had uh, you know, teaching, coaching, part of my family, large part of my family. My father um, is a career you know, high school teacher and a football and baseball coach, 45-plus um, years at doing it. Uh, my brother now in, uh, in Chicago at Loyola Academy is a, uh, is a teacher and a coach, um, head of the baseball program there. So um, that was kind of a possibility for me, or, or so I thought. And, um, and through a, a couple conversations, um, kind of organic, not necessarily you know, thought out or planned out, it was okay. Well, if if I, I feel good about having that, I can go back to Wisconsin. I could do the the teaching and the coaching thing. But what what else? If if in the game and um, you know, it was literally just sending out um, resumes and trying to make connections. And I got lucky, to be honest with you. I think I was fortunate to get uh, an interview for an internship in the commissioner's office and. I was lucky to be offered that job. I don't think I did anything overtly special or, um, you know, off the wall or memorable. I, I think, you know, I just I just got lucky and I, I did. A, I think I did a good job in the interview and I think I got lucky because there were other people that they were interviewing too. And so there there's that element of timing and luck involved in, in all these things. You worked in the commissioner's office for three years? Four. Four years? Yeah. Did you think at any point during that time that you might just have a career working for Major League Baseball in the commissioner's office? There are, there are people there who are lifers. Absolutely there are. Um, and four years there you get a pretty good, if you're paying attention, you get a, a pretty good understanding of what that means, right? Life in the commissioner's office um, and kind of the landscape there. Now, granted, it's changed a lot. I mean, I left in 2000 at the end of 04. It's changed a lot over the last, you know, 12, 13 years there. Uh, it's grown, it's it's expanded, it's um, in, in ways multiplied. Uh, new guy at the top. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, new leader. Um, so it's not the same, you know, place that necessarily that it was back then. The, the way that I looked at it after probably three years there, I kind of knew that um, maybe my expectations for myself, my hopes and dreams for myself, if I were going to stay in this industry, probably were not going to be met or be able to be met in the, in the commissioner's office. So I started to brainstorm and I you know, did, okay, I need, that. so there was that. Um, what's, what's the future? Where do I want to live? You know, planning on that time back then, um, about to get engaged and be, you know, be married to my college um, sweetheart, and where did we want to live and where do we want to raise a family? That certainly played into it, but also, um, you know, career-wise, what's the goal here? And, and some of it was um, needing and, and desiring and feeling a, um, a draw towards the competitiveness of baseball, which is kind of tamped down in the commissioner's office to a certain degree uh, that you get an unbelievable broad perspective on the industry and you make a lot of contacts and you meet a lot of people and you're 
potentially dealing with a lot of different things, but you don't have that daily ownership and you don't have that daily competitive um, outlet that you do with a club. So I, I felt like I needed that um, if I was going to try to continue in this industry. And then I was running a parallel course. You know, you brought it up, you know, other guys going elsewhere and then coming into the industry. I was, you know, if I can't stay in this game, if it's if an opportunity with a club is not in, in the offing for me, then you know, I was going to go back to school and, and get an MBA somewhere. Um, and so running that parallel course as well at that time. You move on to the Rockies front office, and over the next decade, you hold jobs in minor league operations, player development, among others. Was as you made your way through that, did you have your eye on eventually becoming a big league GM? Uh, at the time, way back when, oh four, oh five, not not really. Uh, I don't think I I don't think I knew enough back then to be honest about the job. Um, uh, I, I I was very interested in and seeing it firsthand, and um, and Dan O'Dowd certainly did an incredible job with me, um, as well as with others down line. I mean, there's a there's a tree, um, there's a tree there that, that kind of stems from from Dan and the Rockies um, over the course of the last decade. So he did a, an incredible job of me in, in in terms of showing me, you know, the ropes and in over a long period of time, but just kind of exposing and um, and. Uh, you know, let me let me be involved in that sort of in that process. So, over time, it, it became clear that it was something that I felt like I would I would hope and, and you know I could do that aspire to do. Um, felt like over time, if I learned some lessons and I and I over time gained some experience, that that I might be positioned to to be able to do the job. But coming into it initially, it's not like it was a um, it's not like it was the. I just wanted to get more experience and do a good job at whatever I was asked to do at that back at that time. You mentioned Dan. You worked for him for a long time. Mm -hmm. What did you learn most from him? Um, I think um, well, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a. I mean, we spent a long time together, so there was a lot of things. Um, if you ask me, one the one thing, um, I think the the scope of the job the responsibility that you feel to the the organization at large you know it's uh, um, it's it's not easy you know it's a very um, the, the scope is large and uh, and it's a it's a people game and there's a lot of people involved and um, and the more you know the more intimate connections you can develop with those people over time or try to maintain over time it's uh, it's it can be key to how well your organization does, and um, you know the other th I think the other thing is Dan always was pushing the envelope. Um, he was pushing the envelope and, and trying to you know make sure that people weren't kind of sitting on their laurels or um, you know comfortable or ready. He always wanted to kind of push you into a, a zone of uncomfortable. Um, uncomfortableness for lack of a better word and, and, and that was to grow you know it was to grow the organization it was to grow you as an individual um, and I think he he did that well did you always envision he would become a big TV star someday <laughs> I can't say that I did but <laughs> you know I don't I can't claim I have an eye for TV talent so. <laughs> baseball talent maybe TV talent not so much uh, I've noticed teams are loaded with Ivy Leaguers in their front offices these days aside from the obvious education that you all received which we know is excellent mm -hmm. 
Do you think there's a, a reason that, that that trend has taken place? I don't know. I, you know, the way I honestly, the way I look at that, you know, yeah, college was something I did for four years a long time ago, right? And um, there are a lot of great non-Ivy League executives, just not just in baseball, across other sports, across other industries that are very successful at what they do. There are a lot of Ivy League executives that are very good. There are a lot of Ivy League executives that, you know, or executives with Ivy League educations that, that, that don't do a very good job. It, I don't, you know, it's not like, and I, it's tough for me to speak for the other guys that went to Ivy League schools, but I don't show up every day saying, okay, I'm a, I'm a Harvard-educated executive. It's, it's something I did a while ago. Did it, did it challenge me at that time of my life to, you know, in ways that I had never even come close to being challenged before? Absolutely. Did I, as I said earlier, was I in awe of the people around me at times because of their abilities and their skills and their intelligence level? And did those people push me? Absolutely. Um, did I grow up a lot because of coming from Milwaukee to Boston, you know, somewhat sheltered 18 year old kid going to um, a big city and living there and, and experiencing, you know, some of the things that the East Coast has to offer? Uh, yeah, so th there was a lot of growth there over those four years. and. And at a place like that, is it special growth? Potentially. Um, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And so there's, there's a lot of time between then and now to either continue on that path and, and try to make good on that and be as good as you can possibly be, and there's a lot of time to screw it up. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to say that, um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to, to an Ivy League school being on a resume, giving you potential looks and getting a foot in the door, um, but I think after that, it's it's all on the individual, and you got to own that. I read an interview recently where you said uh, that you try to learn from the way some NFL teams operate, including your hometown Packers. Mm -hmm. Paul DePodesta made the jump from baseball to football, and the chief strategy officer for the Browns for the last 14, 15 months. Right. Do you think this could become a trend, or do you think he's a unique case? <laughs> um... I don't know. I, 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 I trend. I don't know. I mean, it, it, he's uh, he's certainly seemingly the first to, to do it to make that jump. Um, uh, th there are a lot of shared um, skills um, among the different major sports industries. There are a lot of shared experiences in, in terms of how you have to, the types of decisions that you have to make, how you have to prepare yourself to make decisions. Um, but there are also a, a huge host of, of differences too. And there's a lot of uniqueness um, when you start to compare the sports industries to, to each other. And so it's tough, you know, not speaking for Paul, but I imagine that there was a pretty good learning curve for him initially. Um, and he's an incredibly intelligent human being, so I, I imagine he acquitted him, you know, he, he, he equipped himself quite well, pretty quickly, um, to some of those things he had to learn, but uh, um, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily shock me, um, but uh, I don't, it's tough to say one person is a trend, right, I mean, well, you know, I think everybody's kind of got their eye and see how this goes, and the Browns are an interesting kind of case study anyway, um, regardless of, of Paul's involvement or not. Um, so they're kind of uniquely situated right now in a lot of different ways to, to, to 
you know, take some huge steps and make a lot of growth. And and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. It would have been different if you go to the Patriots and just become a part of their operation. Probably. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're if you're stepping into a kind of that well-oiled machine, and but you know, I don't think didn't seem like that's what Paul wanted to do, right? right. I mean, he wanted to kind of. Take for a challenge. That's, that's right. Probably about as big as that's there right. is, right? That's right. Speaking of challenges, what are the challenges of building a team that plays a course field? A lot. Of, most of them are similar to any challenge at any place. Um, for us, it's uh, you know, as we've talked a lot about before. It's uh, the versatility, positional versatility with our position players. It's depth, depth of players on your roster, depth off the roster of guys that are. Developing and, and waiting, kind of waiting in the wings, and can take the ball and, um, to use a football term, take the ball and run with it when they're given the opportunity. Um, you know, pitching, we you know we've we've made a commitment to kind of flood our our process with pitching and try to do so in, in as many different ways as possible. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that we're interested in taking all comers. It's it's a little bit more specific and. And uh, <clears throat> intentional than that, but um, you know, increasing and, and maximizing our athleticism in addition to that as much as we can, knowing that pitching and defense ultimately, in my opinion, humble opinion, lead to championships um, or direct you towards championships. So, um, you know, uh, all those things, um, not so unique in other places, but um, or or in comparison to other places, but. Uh, for us, it's uh, you know that the some of the smaller things about playing at altitude that are part of our reality uh, come into play more often than they would at other places. So rest and recovery, um, you know, the grind of, of a full season, uh, six month, hopefully seven month season, doing you know doing that there, it can you know it, it forces us to at, at times make different decisions maybe or think about things, consider things that other organizations don't have to. And that's okay. I mean, that's just part of who we are. Um, but we have to, all those other things that I just talked about, you know, we got to make sure that those are in, in good shape and in good order so that we can adjust on the fly or that we can address some of the, you know, fatigue or, um, you know, some of the other issues that come up at times from, from playing in altitude. I mean, every team has its own challenges in some Absolutely. aspect or another. You think about Absolutely. the teams in New York, they have to consider how a player might handle the media pressure or, right. or that kind of thing. So it's... Playing, it's just you know, a matter of hitters, difference. yeah, hitters for for ages, right? Hitters hitting in, you know, Seattle or San Francisco right. or San Diego versus huge, New York or Baltimore, huge right. ballparks, you know, where those those ballparks that tend to favor pitchers, um, you know, hitters got the same complaints at times there that pitchers do with us in Denver, right? It's, you know, and so every yeah, let's just look what you said every team's kind of got its unique little things that it's got to it's got to address and it's got to tackle and it's got to become experts at if you're enjoying this mark feinstein interview make sure you check out all the great conversations featured in the mlb.com newsmakers podcast you'll hear mark and other mlb.com reporters chat with baseball's brightest stars of today and the past as well as the game's best broadcasters and writers you can download MLB.com Newsmakers today on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts by searching Newsmakers. Now, back to Mark Feinsand. Troy Tulowitzki was the face of this franchise for a very long time. How difficult was the decision to trade him? Uh, it, was, it was a difficult decision at the time, um, as it should be, I think. You know, when, you're, when you're talking about a player of his caliber, um, somebody that had been drafted... Um, by the organization 
and our, you know, Billy Schmidt and our, our guys did a great job in terms of knowing who he was as a player and, uh, and saying, yeah, this is the guy that, that uh, is the right pick you know, for us as, a, as our next shortstop. And, um, you know, didn't spend a very long time in the minors and hit the big leagues and was ready for it. And, you know, the rest is history, right? So, um, you know, at thinking back on that now, it's been a couple years um, with the emergence of Trevor Story, with you know the, some of the the ways and things that we've been focused on um, trying to improve ourselves. I, I do feel like it was a necessary trade for the organization with where we were at at the time and what our needs were, um, and being willing to bet on somebody having known Trevor Story for really his entire career with us at that point as a minor leaguer, um, betting on him um, being you know, the kind of the heir apparent and being ready to kind of tackle that. Now, we didn't know that he was going <laughs> to do what he did last year in right. the fashion that he did it, but having confidence that um, that we had a young man who was ready to, to take that next step in his career and become um, become the, 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 the shortstop for us, uh, the everyday guy, and, and take on that responsibility and be ready for that responsibility. Um, that helped in terms of um, um, making a tough decision like the Taylor trip. We've reached a point where every team in baseball has an analytics department, right. some bigger than others. Uh, one GM told me he's even seen scouts beginning to take to analytics because some of the metrics are backing up what they've been seeing on, on the field all these years. Was it important to put the whole scouting versus analytics debate to bed and for everybody just to sort of accept that it's all part of it? Yeah, I don't, you know, it, it's... I think it's outside of the industry. I think fans and media and book writers and movie makers and you know casual fans, intense fans, um, Brad Pitt, pe- you can say Brad Pitt, people that, <laughs> people that enjoy you know thinking about the game, controversial. You know, it, it just outside. I think it's it's topical and it's something to discuss and it, it seems like it has meaning. I think inside the industry, for the most part. Especially where we're with that now, it's this whole one versus the other is just—it's just not all that relevant or true. Um, you know, you, you can—I think we there are parts of of this game that we can forget pretty quickly. You know, and some some of the smaller parts. I mean, stats have been around forever, right? Sure. Check check any the back of any baseball card. Um, Scouting has been around forever. Um, now. Technology has changed, um, which has increased our access to stats and the different types of stats that we have. So um, that I think more than anything has has brought statistical analysis to the forefront more than people trying to poo-poo scouting or the scouting process or the art and the skill of of scouting human beings because that is still really hugely important. It's really not a a versus situation. It's a how do we best combine these things and mold these things and help both of those processes get better through that that combined effort uh, or that combined learning or the the challenging of convention, whether it's anal- you know statistics convention or it's scouting convention. When the, when when things are challenged in in good healthy ways, then usually there's growth involved, and so. I think that's kind of where we're at. We forget things, and I, th- I don't think I don't. Th- you know, we forget that years ago, 
you know, the teams were shifting against Ted Williams. And, you know, all of a sudden shifting is a big deal now, but it's not like, I mean, there were very few original ideas in this game. Um, now, we might focus on certain things more um, now than in years past or eras past, but, um, you know, I, this, I don't, I don't believe or buy into this whole scouting versus analytics. It's just, uh, it's not realistic, at least not for us anyway. When analytics first hit the scene, it was viewed as a tool that small market teams were using to try to, you know, catch up with the big market teams that they didn't have the same financial resources. Do you think teams now, now that everybody's has an analytics department and it's more widely used league-wide, do you think teams are out there looking for the next big thing that's going to try to give them a competitive advantage? Yeah, absolutely. And we should, right? I mean, that's <clears> – and I think nutrition and, um, you know, wearable – I think technology, we have – we're just probably scraping the surface here, um, especially – trying to read the tea leaves of Rod Manfred and, and some of the things that, that he believes in, in in terms of taking the industry to into the next, you know, generation. Um, and, you know, wearable technology is probably going to be there here and, and be commonplace at some point soon. Um, the, uh, the way that we train our athletes, the way that we feed our athletes, not just at the major league level, but all the way down to rookie ball. And into the Dominican, you know, DSL league. I mean, that, that's there. There are things I think that that in that way, especially that that we're going to probably take steps forward here, um, potentially in leaps and bounds over the next however many years. Um, but yeah, and that's uh, we should. I mean, the teams should be looking to. It's a competitive business, and if you can gain an edge and do it legally uh, within the rules, then yeah, you should be pushing the envelope. That way. Do you think Stack has changed the way fans are looking at the game? In what way? What do you mean? Well, some of the metrics, exit velocity, spin rate, uh, root efficiency are more widely available to fans than they've ever been before, and so it's, it seems like it's entering the, mm-hmm. uh, you know... Common sort of common of, vernacular. Common type. vernacular, yeah. you know. Exit, I remember Brian Cashman would talk to us about exit velocity four years ago, and we'd look at him like he was, you know, crazy. Right. Now, all of a sudden, it's showing up on broadcasts, and yeah. do you think fans are... are, are Maybe viewing the way that they watch the game a little differently. Yeah, probably. But aren't we all? I mean, we're right. You know, I, I mean, cable television is changing, right? I mean, everybody's watching games on their phones or their iPads, or you know, streaming this, streaming that. I mean, just the way that that uh, you know, without getting into specifics, just generally the way that people are watching sports now is not just baseball is changing, um, and some of that has to do with the. The changing landscape of, of television. Some of it has to do with technology advances and the ease of of which now we have access to very specific and immediate data points. You know, in game, real time. Yeah, it's it's absolutely changing it. And some of it's great. You know, um, some of it's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, when they replay, you know, a guy making a diving catch in the gap, and they can show you where he started and show you the path, the exact path he took to get to that ball. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. It, it, you know, and it's understandable that fans would get excited about those things. Um, and I would, I would guess, it's purely a guess, but I would guess that those sorts of things are here to stay. I don't think they're going to revert back to you know, 1980s grainy television watching baseball or football or basketball. 
I think those things are here to stay. I would hope not. Yeah. I'd be, uh, you be watch sli- some, slightly disappointed. You watch some old stuff on ESPN <laughs> Classic or old tapes that's and right. stuff, and you're like, wow, that's what yeah. TV looked like back then. And we were happy, right? And we were happy we were with, it. with it. It was in color. Holy what more cow. did you want, right? Uh, let's look at this year's team a little bit. Why, why was Bud Black the right choice for you as your new manager? Where to begin, right? Um, he, uh, it became... I, you know, I've said it before. We, I think we had a good interview process. I think we had a, a good um, grouping of interviewees. And um, he was one of our late ones uh, in the process. And uh, it was fairly clear pretty quickly that um, how he talked about the game, how he viewed the game, um, the breadth of, and depth of his experiences in the game, what his goals were, what, you know, for, for the rest of his personal career, um, how he viewed this organization, his experiences with the organization from um, the periphery a little bit, having been an analyst for a long time, but um, even more specifically with where he saw, from an outsider's perspective still, but where he saw the team, how we were situated, what our, what our potential future might be here in the um, his desire to, you know, his comfort in the division, his desire to, you know, ultimately, if, if he could control it, be on the West Coast or close to the West Coast from a family perspective. You know, I mean, there was just a lot of things that kind of added up and, and became pretty clear um, that, uh, that he, was, he was the right guy for us at this time. And uh, I think his excitement for the opportunity matched our excitement to, to get to know him and uh, ultimately, um, you know, ultimately that led to, to what's been a, so far a, a great decision. I mean, he's been he's been as advertised and then some in terms of uh, his personality and uh, you know and the way that his his leadership ability, his his willingness to to lead and desire to lead and, and having very um, specific ways of doing. It both from a uh, high expectation standpoint and a standard standpoint, but also, you know, that element of fun and enjoying this ride that we're on right now. Um, you know, it's been, um, it's, been, it's been good for us and it's been fun to watch. You signed Ian Desmond to play first base for a $70 million contract, despite the fact that he had never played an inning there before. Mm-hmm. What made you believe that that was a good fit? Um, a few different things. One was that just you brought up the position. Positionally, it's you know, he was never pushed out of the infield. Um, his opportunity last year for playing time and, and for a contract um, on a very good team was the outfield, and he took it and, and ran with it. Right? And in, in short order, became their starting center fielder, which is not uh, it's not an easy thing. It's not a simple thing to do. So. Um, in talking to him about that and in, in discussing how that all went down and the work that he put into it, it, it wasn't just some happy accident. The work that he put into it was huge. The belief that he had in himself that that he was going to be able to do it no problem, go from shortstop to center field, um, and he did it. So that, uh, you know, the way that he talked about first base in that, in that way, um, the understanding that he had of the, the importance of the position as it relates to a, a high-functioning infield 
that it's not just some throwaway defensive spot that his you know his ability to remember the you know the very talented defensive first baseman that he had played with and the less than talented first base defensive first baseman he'd played with and and how that changed um, how the the whole operation worked or infield wise from over the course of a long season um, and um, you know there's a, a lot of other things as well that went into it but it was just a, a sense of of confidence that you know this is not going to be that big of a deal for this guy um, and we're going to be committed fully committed and on the same page together to make sure that he becomes the very best first baseman that he can um, and he's a plus athlete at the age of 30 31 he's still a very you know he's a very good athlete moves very well um, and we felt like his athleticism and his versatility positionally um, once he did learn the position, was going to be a great fit. Right-handed bat, power bat. Um, if you look at you know the last few years of his career in some interesting situations, you know going from Washington to Texas to playing different positions, he still produced offensively. And adding that all of that to you know, what we felt was already a very talented offensive group and defensive group um, was. It, it, you know, going to be a plus. Now he didn't think he would break his his hand being hit by a pitch. Uh, it's unfortunate, but um, you know, all of those things kind of combined. Um, you know, it seemed like a, a good decision for us. The team in your position might have surveyed the free agent landscape, thought about him, said, "We have a shortstop, we have a center fielder," and moved on. Do you often try to think outside the box when looking at at players out there? Yeah, you know, it, it again, it it. Um, you know, I think this was a good example of, of, of good conversation and, and good brainstorming um, with our front office, along with Buddy Black, and and um, trying to be true to the vision that we had for this team moving forward. Um, and we felt like Ian fit that vision, and uh, you know, as long as certain things, certain conditions were met about making sure that the transition from for him to first base went well. Commitment to the work involved in the wintertime, everybody, Ian, me, Buddy, our coaches, um, you know, the, and mapping that out, knowing that we had, we were going to have time if we could sign him to, to create first base for him. Um, as long as, as we were going to commit to each other and, and and create a plan and actually execute that plan, then it was, if we were gonna, you know, for lack of a better term, half-ass it, or any piece of that puzzle was not gonna be fully in, then it would it would have given us major pause. But the fact that we were, we were everybody was fully on board and fully committed to it, and we went out and did it, um, you know, I mean, it, we just felt like, you know, whether it's out of the box or not, I don't know, but, um, you know, we, we felt like we saw a person and a player and an athlete that was a good fit. And if we could get everybody on the same page and execute this plan, it was going to be a great fit for us. Uh, and he broke his, you know, we did it and he broke his sure. hand. And so, that happens. you know, it happens. And so now we're looking forward to him getting healthy and, and being a major part of, of the offense here and defense. Greg Holland was one of the most successful closers in the game before he had his Tommy John surgery. Uh, did you see him as a potentially high reward signing mm -hmm. at a reasonable price? Definitely high reward potential. You know, it's um, guys. Guys 
coming back from the Tommy John surgery, it's it's never a, ever a sure thing. Um, but it is a you know it's it's become unfortunately it's become a very um, popular and a very routine um, surgery and recovery process. Not it's not again not 100 percent, but um, you know we we felt like we had an understanding of the person in a lot of ways because of the history that Steve Foster and, and Craig Holland had together in, in Kansas City. And so understanding the human being um, and what this guy was all about in, in adding that to where he was at in his career, coming back from Tommy John, rehabbing um, you know, his own expectations for himself through that process. Uh, how he was going to go about doing that, the seriousness of which he takes his career and his work and his responsibility to, you know, saving games and shutting down and getting outs and, and shutting down innings and, and all of that. Uh, you know, there was, there was you know, comfort in that um, with the situation that he was in, in terms of taking, you know, taking a chance on a uh, high-risk, high-reward chance on a guy that had, uh, you know, just had surgery but had been extremely extremely elite um, just prior to, to breaking down. People who don't watch the Rockies on a regular basis might not realize just how good Nolan Arenado's past two years have been. Mm -hmm. How much fun has it been for you to watch him blossom into the superstar that he's become? Uh, it, I think it's been just as much fun for us internally here to, to watch that as it has been for our fans to watch it. Um, I know there's a great amount of pride in, with our scouts and especially our amateur scouts. Um, the guys that saw him as a I mean if you if you go back to his draft video as a high schooler uh, you know you, you look at it and it's kind of a, a pudgy guy kind of you know there's still some baby fat on there and kind of a unique swing unique swing path he was actually catching at the time uh, you can see him both play third base in that video and catch and our, our guys did an incredible job of saying okay if this were to happen, if this were to happen, this guy could be special. And for Billy Schmidt to go, okay, the, you know, in a high high draft pick, high round, this is this is the guy. I believe in this guy. And then for Nolan and all of our coaches um, and everybody around Nolan for years to just kind of help him get to, you know, where he is at now, um, it's extremely rewarding. Um, and you're right, he doesn't, you know, he has not gotten probably the the same pub or the same notoriety as some other guys across the game. Um, you know, we get spoiled on a daily basis watching Nolan because there are plays that we've been so accustomed to him, especially defensively, we get so accustomed to him making plays that are just kind of otherworldly. And you know, when he doesn't make a routine play, it's like you know what you know what what the you know, but but he's a human being. Right, you know, guys, guys make errors. Um, you know, he spoils us that way. Um, that's just how good he is. I feel like he and Paul Goldschmidt may be the two most anonymous, you know, top five players or top eight players in the league yeah. that we've seen in a long time. You know, and they're both they're both seemingly understated. Uh, you know, they don't they don't get on Twitter and they don't make they're not a, flipping their bats. They're not and, flipping right. bats. They're not. They don't do a lot of things that uh, either on or off the field that call attention to themselves. Uh, they go out and they play, and they they play their butts off, and um, and their focus. You know, I can't. It's tough to speak for for Goldschmidt. Sure. You know, but watching him for years in this division, 
know, it just seems like the focus is on the field, and that's certainly the case for Nolan. Um, and you know, sometimes that that goes, you know, unrewarded in terms of uh, in terms of publicity or notoriety. But uh, um, if he if he isn't a one of the top five players in the game, uh, you know, it, it, it's tough to imagine who's who the, the other four guys or five guys that are better. Do you think John Gray can take the next step this season to become yes. a true number one? Yes. You know, the number really doesn't matter. I mean, it's it's easy to say number one, number two, whatever. The number doesn't matter. Can John Gray take another step and become even better than he is right now? Absolutely. You know, it's through experience. Um, you know, just increased belief and, and confidence, self-confidence, uh, but true belief in, in who he is and and, um, and how he's going to attack hitters and and, uh, and put us in position to win, you know, hopefully every game that, that he pitches. So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, he is still young in some ways in terms of his major league experience, and so there's growth and there's growth potential. So he absolutely can. Young, controllable talent is the most valuable thing in baseball uh, in terms of payroll, in terms of just everyday lineup. How rewarding has it been to see players you've developed here, guys like Charlie Blackman, Trevor Story, Dave Dahl, form an important core of this team's future? Um, in terms of who we are as an organization, it's uh, I think it is um, vitally important for us. Um, it's not always a given that guys uh, like each other and fall in love with each other as teammates um, and as friends. There is a lot of that with, with this core right now, I think. And um, and there's been a lot of work put in. I mean, that's, that just hasn't happened by um, by surprise or by coincidence. I mean, that, that there's a lot of time spent around each other. There's, you know, whether it's in the wintertime here at Salt River um, and, and guys choosing to care about each other and choosing to be around each other a lot and push each other, uh, especially in the wintertime, not just during the season. So um, that, that's, that is part of, you know, we, we do believe here that, that that's going to help take us to where we want to go. That's going to be part of the equation, um, you know. And, um, and I think you know, we, you guys, whether it's players, whether it's people in the front office um, or other parts of the organization, we have one chance we have one chance in this life, and in this baseball life. Um, people rarely get two chances. You got one shot to make it good, make it right, and in doing it with people that you care about and people that you that you like and respect, um, you know, it's it makes it makes it sweeter. So, um, why not work hard at, at making that part of our reality? How do you rate your farm system right now? I like it. Don't really care, you know what the rankings are. Rates are wrong. Or how do you assess your farm system? Yeah, I, um, I think we, um, you know, uh, the, I, I believe it's balanced in, in, in ways um, that we've been focused on. I think, um, you know, we've, uh, we've balanced it between the pitchers and the position players to a certain degree. Um, and I think that as long as the players continue, the young players continue to develop, I do feel like there are waves um, of, of impactful talent that, you know, there's three or four waves of impactful talent um, that, could, that could hit us over the next, you know, four, five, six, seven years. And uh, that's important to not have a major hole or a major gap. 
um, in that system. Now, things happen. Players get hurt. Trades happen. Um, players don't develop as, as rapidly or just as well as you um, think they will. But as we sit here right now, I, I do feel like we are, we are strong. And if we can keep people healthy and keep people developing, that we're, we're well situated to continue to add um, impactful guys to our major league roster um, in the near future like we have you know, with guys like Story and Dahl and Tapia and Gray and you know Anderson and you know guys that are, are like you said are, are kind of part of that core uh, and that young developing core at the major league level. Last one for you. How do you assess the overall state of the National League West? Tough, talented, very talented, um, and that's great. That's how it should be, right? Um, you know, if, if we're going to be the best, we got to beat the best, and um, I'm a firm believer that iron sharpens iron. And whether that's internal, it definitely happens here internally. Um, but um, it happens externally as well. I mean, the, the better teams you play, the better the better you are. That's why in the NCAAs they pay attention to strength of schedule, right? I mean, uh, um, you know, the, if you, generally if you play better teams throughout um, your season, as long as you have health, you you oftentimes are best situated for success at the end of the season and in the postseason, which is obviously the most important. So, um, you know, there are, there are very good teams and there are very good players and there are teams with means and, um, you know, and so it's going to be a great challenge as it always is. And uh, we look forward to, to stepping up and meeting that challenge and, and being one of the best teams in this division. Jeff, good luck this season. Appreciate your time. Thank you.